0: Today's guest, Rene Insam, VP, Corporate and Institutional Solutions, Wealth Management of Morgan Stanley, sitting in Denver, Colorado.
1: There's a great change framework by David Cooper writer, who says uh, an organization or society will will develop in the directions of the questions that they ask the most. And just by, you know, looking at the public discourse and the conversation here in business, everyone is talking about AI constantly all the time. So there is no doubt that the impact is going to be outsized. That the um, that jobs will change. That that roles will disappear. I believe there's, as always, an upside and a downside to this. I think it's very promising in terms of um, growth, right? So there, there's just a lot of. I, I, there's three buckets of AI, I believe. One is knowledge, and I think that. The fact that you can, you know, put a prompt in chat GPT and get a perfect answer, one that's good enough to pass, you know, the legal entrance exams to Harvard Law School, why, you know, think about school, think about college, why are you going to go to, you know, to college for four years to regurgitate knowledge? Knowledge is solved, right? The second bucket is repeatable process. So to the extent that you can let a robot do a process that is highly repeatable, you know i think uh we're going to see that taken over by by ai and then the last bucket is true problem solving and i think for the foreseeable future for for the for the near medium term that will remain you know a uh, a human domain uh connecting dots you know being innovative and creative and solving problems but there too i think pretty soon I imagine a world where you can say to chat gpt or some robot solve world hunger and what it gives back to you is an ideal world map with crop rotation and supply lines and distribution mechanisms, right? And that problem is just solved. The problem will always be, can you get humans to agree on, well, here's the solution, let's implement it, right? Um, but I think in terms of knowledge, in terms of how quickly knowledge will become accessible, how, how you can deploy it, um, and in terms of repeatable process being automated by AI... I think we're going to see that happen so crazy fast. It's already happening even in financial services, right? So you have robots uh, managing your portfolio because it can look at 3,000 economic data points, where a human portfolio manager maybe looked at 10 and decided how to rebalance a portfolio based on that, right?
0: Rene and I talked about um, how it was to build a career in the US in the financial services industry. Then we also pivoted to an overall global view on the economy um, and drawing some parallels from the 2008 crisis and now um, our most recent um, changes in the economy. Then we also looked into Europe versus US overall, what makes it different and into AI and um, what it can do to the future of jobs, how we work and um, overall what it can do with the economy. I would say it's a really um, zoomed out episode into some very interesting global um, topics that are just relevant to everybody. Um, So enjoy the episode and have fun. Then you can build trust and then you can spend less time communicating and more time just getting shit done. Then I went home and, and thought about this sentence. We basically
1: put it on the table. Hiring
0: takes time. People are trained. How to objectively judge certain it's situations. very, 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 very hard to change that. That was the learning.
1: Entrepreneurs with empathy. On the people side.
0: Today we have René here, um, the brother of Alexander Insam. Alexander was already a guest um, in my podcast. I think it was... Episode number fifteen, and um, at the end, I always ask for recommendations, and he also recommended Uranay. So um, happy that you made the time to do a, a podcast with me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm surprised my brother recommended me, but uh, but here we are. That's <laughs> perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so
0: surprised because when I just looked at your background and profile, I think it's really interesting. So maybe we start um, with some context about yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um so I was born in Luxembourg, hence the French name. My parents thought it'd be fun to give me a French name and bring me home as a souvenir from their time in in Luxembourg, if you will. And uh and I I've I've moved to the United States in two thousand five, where the name Renee is mostly uh associated with females. So I run frequently run into uh the issue that people who just read my name and don't see me think that they're talking to a woman or that they're about to be talking to a woman. So um, that's sort of like the 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 background on, you know, where I was born. I grew up my formative years mostly in Germany in the Frankfurt area. Um, and then um, for college, you know, I got my undergrad in economics at the University of Passau. And they had an exchange program at the time with various, you know, universities in the United States, which was a country that had always You know, intrigued me primarily, to be honest, because of uh, because of sports. I was a huge uh, NHL hockey fan, uh, football, basketball, you name it. So, um, you know, the that's how it started. But the opportunity to go and spend, you know, even just a year studying abroad here in the United States was a very tempting opportunity. So, I was able to get into that program. Went to Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo and got my uh, my MBA there, and then. I had unfinished business in Germany for a while. You know, the the idea was to go back and and finish my uh, my diploma um, at the University of Passau. But about a week after uh, graduating from Western, uh, I got a uh, I got a job offer, and uh, in, in uh, working for a small IT consulting company in Phoenix, Arizona. So I took it. You know, I figured if if I hate it, if it doesn't work out, I can always come back um, to Germany and. That was in 2005, and and here we are, you know, 18 years later, and I'm still here. And you know, you know how it goes: you meet a girl, you settle down, you you know, you buy a house, and uh, and the rest is history. So, um, yeah, that's you know, it's always been for me. It's been 18 years in financial services over here in the U.S. Um, we spent 10 years in Arizona, and then moved to Denver, Colorado, uh, and absolutely love it here. Uh, it's a fantastic place to live. If you have a chance to uh, to visit Denver and the Rocky Mountains, I recommend it. Um,
0: yeah, you can do a lot of great skiing, I guess, right? It's
1: fantastic in the winter. It's fantastic in the summer. I mean, everything that you may have heard about the ski resorts here, whether it's, you know, Aspen, Vail, Breckenridge. It's everything. Everything is pretty close. I, I watched a lot
0: of videos back then from Tom Wallish and all the crazy guys in freeskiing in, free in Breckenridge. They were really crazy. And we always try to do the stuff um, by ourselves um, yeah. because I'm from Tirol and we also have the Alps. So we are also very pleased with a lot of beautiful mountains. And we tried all the videos the U.S. guys did over there um, by ourselves. And it was really a crazy fun time, I can say.
1: That sounds great. Yeah, it's very similar, I think, to the Alps in that um it's it's a very outdoorsy place.
0: Okay, and how did you end up in the financial services industry?
1: Um yeah, that's a great question because it, I feel like it found me. I wasn't looking I wasn't looking for it. Um you know, I I think it's maybe usual or, or pretty typical that at age 18 or 19 when I when I got my abitur. I was, I didn't have a ton of direction. You know, I didn't know exactly what careers were out there, what I wanted to do. So at the time, my parents suggested that I do a, an apprenticeship, uh, you know, with a bank, it's something solid. It's something that, you know, you walk away with a, with a learned profession. Um, and then you can still decide, uh, you know, what you want to do when, once you go to college. So, so I did a, a two year apprenticeship at Deutsche Bank in Munich. Um, And uh, it was interesting. I mean, I learned a lot. It was, it was difficult at times. Uh, I would consider myself to be a late bloomer. So just having the two years of, you know, living on your own, figuring out life, uh, figuring out budgeting and householding and all that stuff was really useful. Um, And, uh, and it was clear that, you know, the general, maybe not banking, but the general idea to work with money um was intriguing enough that i that I then decided to you know go into sprachen uh, wirtschafts and kulturraum at the University of Passau and I put an emphasis on the economics piece of that um and then you know after my four diploma I felt like while it was interesting to learn a lot of different subjects, I felt like none of them went deep enough to have enough expertise to really become an expert in anything and so I uh I decided to go to, to the US to come to the US and get my MBA um, to be really solid, sort of in, in that, you know, business space. And then the first job offer uh, you know, from this IT consulting company in Phoenix, they placed me with nationwide insurance, which is a big insurance company here in the United States. And then one thing led to another, right? Then I was kind of off and running. I've and I've never really had over the last two decades. Uh, the temptation or, you know, a big opportunity or a path not taken or anything like that, that would have made me switch industries. Because the other thing is too, and I'm sure that, you know, everyone agrees with that, or, or many people will agree with that. Once you start, you know, acquiring all of that industry expertise, and I don't care which industry it is, um, you just get better at your job, right? There's a lot of things that are, uh, that are sort of industry dependent that you learn, whether it's, you know, especially in financial services, there's a ton of regulatory compliance, uh, and, you know, just oversight, uh, from the government that once you build products, uh, and I've always been sort of in the digital product management space. So I work with scrum teams and development teams to develop software and digital capabilities for clients and for advisors. Uh, and once you kind of understand that industry, that industry uh it be, it becomes part of your you know your value uh, how much you can bring to the table and almost to be honest also how much you're going to be able to get paid right so if i switch industries now uh i have a lot of skills and experience in managing products and creating new products and bringing products to market but i would have to completely really fit, went into healthcare now right or into construction or into any other industry you kind of start over with that industry expertise and I think you leave some money on the table quite possibly as well.
0: Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe not. <laughs> um,
1: maybe not. It all depends. Yeah, it's that's my take on it anyways. But you're right. Um, you, you know, it's in, it'd be interesting to do something else. I think after two years, and it's an interesting topic maybe for another podcast, but I kind of feel like the idea of having one career in your lifetime I'm not sure that's going to be true much longer, right? I feel like the constant learning, the constant ongoing education that everyone has to engage in, yeah. uh, the way that jobs shift over time, right? I feel like the half-life of any given skill, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah, also
0: the half-life so of think, companies, right? That's also yeah, faster moving and you need new talent available now all the time. <laughs> It's just not there. Already. I agree.
1: I agree. And if you consider that your, you know, uh, your career is going to span four decades or maybe five decades as we get older and older, uh, as our life expectancy goes up, I think that uh, that the idea of having one career for your entire life is just not, you know. Even my brother is, you know, you guys talked about it. It's been a lawyer by trade, and then branched off into mediation and you know more ancillary topics um, to just sort of enrich. His own career profile, but also what the market desires and what the market needs.
0: Mm. Right?
1: In case you like my show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it.
0: And you also have been in on the market as a professional, but also with your background in economics in 2008 when especially the financial markets collapsed. And now we saw something similar um, at the beginning of this year, where markets also collapsed again and um, inflation increased, but also just cash got more expensive. Um, What parallels do you see from 2008 to now?
1: It's interesting because in two thousand eight, I wasn't—I was aware of what was happening, but I wasn't caught up in it. Uh, You know, I graduated with my MBA in two thousand seven. I was lucky, I guess, that I found work in financial services um, and was never really impacted or affected by by that crisis. So I knew it was going on, but I personally didn't feel that impact. And it was right out of college, so I think my overall understanding of the of the context. Um came much later, you know once everyone yeah you know, hindsight hindsight twenty twenty once everyone understood what had happened, mortgage crisis, et cetera now we kind of get it right but but I think the root causes were potentially quite different from what we're experiencing now um and again in the u s my sense is that the higher inflation you know during the pandemic, the government was just uh you know printing money so uh you know, lots of uh, stimulus packages for the consumer. People were given uh, checks in the mail, quite honestly, right, to to support whether they wanted it or not, right, in the hopes that people would take that money and spend it to prop up the economy. That didn't necessarily happen. A lot of people received a stimulus Aid that they never needed, right? And they put it in the bank and invested it in stocks and ETFs and mutual funds, right? So that money was just kind of stashed away and didn't do what it was intended to do, which was really, you know, prop up the economy. Um, and so inflation went up. And now the Fed, uh, so the Federal Reserve Bank here in the US, is very aggressively raising interest rates to bring inflation down, which seems to have worked, right? I think the US is kind of leading the charge and bringing bringing inflation down in the g7 countries at least um but for a few banks uh who were invested in you know uh low coupon low interest uh uh bonds that meant that the balance sheet really took a hit and we had you know banks run out of business because clients begin cash sorting and you know it runs on the bank uh in smaller instances and I'm not sure to which extent that made news in Germany but silicon valley bank yeah, it made first news. republic right yeah smaller regional banks really took took a hit here from from this run on the bank and couldn't withstand it so so the financial sector here has definitely taken a hit um, hopefully the worst is behind us um and we will see investment you know come up again as inflation comes down I hope that the Fed can can stop you know hiking interest rates, but we also see the upside of that. Um, I think yeah, just this week or last week, a lot of major American banks reported earnings for the past quarter, and uh, higher interest rates also mean that they can uh, that that loans come with higher interest rates, right? And um, and so they're starting to see that that windfall and that that cash come back to them as well. So and terms- we'll see we'll see where we are in a few months, but. So far, so good.
0: In terms of in terms of labor, um, what effects do you see, um, in the US, with the inflation and also interest rates on on labor?
1: Yeah, I mean, unemployment has been fantastic here, right? And that's why every everyone's kind of scratching their heads because, um, you know, uh, a lot of economic indicators are pointing towards a recession, but employment, uh, or unemployment rather, stays really low. So I think we're still at uh, don't quote me on this but i think we're somewhere around three percent unemployment um and people are always like yeah but you know uh does it consider hourly work and you know maybe maybe people aren't filing for unemployment but there there is less work to do right um because you know companies are more conservative y- you have seen especially in financial services um you have seen layoffs right um yeah in tech in tech you have seen a lot of layoffs but you know there's depending on what's in your bubble right the news that i get fed with in my in my news bubble indicate that technology and and financial services companies were hiring like crazy during the pandemic so you know just this this uh this this big hiring spree that everyone was on during the pandemic is now being corrected or maybe right sized um and and not really cutting into the flesh right it's more of a uh, it's a couple of pounds that you lose, like you would if you do a good workout program, right? But it's not necessarily a reduction in uh, employment levels or what what we you know what they were like before the pandemic hit. I'm not sure whether that's true or not, right? I'm repeating and copy and pasting a lot of the news that 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 I see and that I read, but the recession hasn't really happened yet, so I think that may be true.
0: Mm. And what is your let's say forecast in terms of when when do you think what are the the attributes that determine um that the overall economy will turn around and things are getting more or less conservative and more optimistic what do you think is is the indicator for the tipping point
1: yeah i wish i knew i i mean i think nobody has a crystal ball and in many ways i think we're already in uh in in strange territory here in terms of the indicators that we do see and, and the fact that a recession hasn't happened yet, or that maybe we're in for what we call a soft landing, which is there's a crisis. There's a lot of indicators that would suggest a recession, but it's not really happening. Um, I think, you know, one signal uh, that everyone is hoping for is that the fed stops raising interest rates. So once inflation I think the target that the Fed has put out there is about two percent. I think we're at three or just above two. So once you know, once we reach two percent inflation, I think the Federal Reserve Bank will either pause the interest rate hikes or you know, maybe present a roadmap in which we see interest rates coming back down, and that will create a whole lot of confidence into the market, I believe. Right? So once it's not so much that even if if the rates stop at 5 or 6% uh, i think it's more important to uh, to investors and to you know companies to know that this is going to be the rate for the foreseeable future because that gives you planning confidence right oh. so any investment that you want to make into building your business you at least know what your cost of capital is going to be going forward and so it it makes it much it's much safer for you now to hire people you know, and to spend money because you know what it's going to cost you. The the biggest problem with confidence into the market is the volatility of it, right? Am I still going to be at five percent uh, next month, right? Or can I can I kick off this project now, knowing that uh, you know the conditions may change again? So obviously, it'd be nicer if money gets gets cheaper, right? Inflation has to be under control for that. But if we get there. And we can stabilize rates at where they are or even or if the fed can signal you know we may bring them back down in the new year i think that's when you will see everyone will have this collective sigh of relief and i think that's when you'll see um uh things uh improving again but but honestly there are so many other factors right whether it's the ukraine war whether it's the u.s election I mean, the U.S. election is, you know, and again, I, my focus is maybe too domestic here, but I, I believe that the that the U.S. election has uh, large international implications, typically with the policy changes that happen between, you know, a Democratic or a Republican president um, and administration. So we'll see what happens with the election, um, right? And everything could, could always uh, twist and turn. But as far as where we are now, I hope that the worst is over and that maybe – with inflation coming down, um, investment will pick up again.
0: And I think it's also important to just mention that um, cash will not immediately get more um, cheap and affordable. It's just certain that it's not increasing in cost out of a sudden, right? So I think that's that's the key point there, because otherwise you, you cannot really plan. And um, of course, you can plan. But then when you also plan for an ad hoc change, then what's the purpose of the confidence into the initial plan, right? So that's a bit the problem there that people are just getting hesitant, even if they don't have to be. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's and it's absolutely true. I I I won't get the saying right now, but um, you know, making plans is futile, but planning is essential. I think. I love I it. Who's... I always
0: say it. I always say it. it's yeah. it's, it's very. very I, I
1: don't know who was it Teddy Roosevelt or something. I don't know who said it, but it's it's very true, right? So, um. I think uh, anything can change uh, pretty quickly, and I mean, look at the Ukraine war. The fact that it's been going on for over a year is just mind-boggling, mm. right? And as far as economics is concerned, I think uh, in in the U.S. at least, I think that conflict is priced in. So even if if we you know find peace in the near future, I'm not sure it'll really impact the markets uh, here in the U.S. I think it would in Europe, right? It may fix the supply chain issues. It may. Um, you know, just uh, have an impact on the European market. I'm not sure that it would on the, on the American market, but it's just, uh, yeah, I think we live in a pretty unpredictable world. So, so uh, plans will have to change frequently. Yes. Right? And, uh, and that's also where the mindset, and I'm curious to hear your take on this Thomas, but the mindset, I think what I observe working, you know, in the U S and having worked here for so long, I think it's a strength of the American system um, and the American mindset is to be very, Uh, I feel like we start a lot of things here uh, and we are not always sure where it's going to lead, but the attitude towards risk, the attitude towards experimentation uh, I feel is, is different. Uh, And I don't want to say better or worse, but um, there's a lot of capital here and a lot of capital is being deployed to just try something. And if it doesn't work, we're not going to dwell on it. We're going to pivot. We're going to take it in a different direction. Um, And, you know, I've seen that in the companies that I've worked for. I always kind of feel I see that, you know, even sort of with the policy approach, um, there's a lot of things that are that are never touched, like our constitution. I think it's crazy that we're You know the Constitution for the United States was written for 13 colonies, and here we are with 50 states, and we're holding on to this thing like it's, you know, made of gold. But a lot of other things are, you know, especially in business, I think we're very flexible and have a a high tolerance for risk, high tolerance tolerance for risk and reward, right? Um, And so I think overall, I always feel like American companies are fairly well prepared for that unpredictable. Markets.
0: Yeah, I think in in Europe it's it's maybe a, a bit le- less like that. But I think also it's it's tougher for a country within Europe to reach the same I would say a- exposure to a a market in in terms of culture, language, and everything that is as big as the US, where you can also just launch something and it gets huge. Yeah, I think that's one difference. Second, I also think that um, the whole culture, mindset, education systems, they are all very built around socialism, especially because after the World War II, um, everybody needed to just support each other to build up the economy and the infrastructure and everything again. Especially, I spent some time in Vienna. It's crazy there. Yeah, The whole socialism... Um, is seen uh, um, decades after decades still, but in in a very I would say positive way because housing is so affordable. And we can also see maybe you also know it from the US that there are ratings. What are the most livable cities to live in? It's Vienna. They always win, yeah. And I can tell you that the rating also considers very much affordability, um, public infrastructure, uh, how how. Safety, nature, so everything. What makes I would say life pleasant for people with an average income, yeah. And um, this is what we can see that everybody has, I would say, enough to be happy with the status quo, and then also the urgency in changing something or making something that big is not there. That crazy than maybe in the US, where everybody also likes to go big, like to spend big, with a higher tendency towards maybe people in Europe or Germany or Austria, whatever. Um, so I think that's also a difference. And also, um, third of, co- of course, the, the the social system and so on. Yeah, you're just covered up more. Um, you have a safety net more than an upside. Yeah, and. This happened over generations, so it shaped the culture, in my opinion. And I think in the U.S. it's a bit different.
1: I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, especially, I mean, whenever we have a a crisis here, um, the sentiment, and I'm repeating one of my favorite, uh, you know, influencers, Scott Galloway. uh, And he says, you know, there's a mindset lately in the United States that is, We want to be capitalistic on the way up and and we want to be socialist on the way down, uh, right? So when things go bad, everyone all of a sudden cries for help and says, oh, the government should probably step in here and either bail out companies to protect employment um, and workers or, you know, the government should step in to stimulate the economy or whatever. But when things are going great, right, everybody wants to participate in the gains and nobody really wants to, you know, contribute to a fund or a bucket of money that could be used when, you know, times, times change and fortunes change. So um, I think that's very true. I think um, uh, in, and you described it perfectly well within its historical context, both systems make a ton of sense. I think the American dream, right, for the individual is alive and well. So the the idea that you could be discovered, right? If you take a random trip to LA and you walk down, you know, um, Hollywood, uh, you know, that, that someone will pull over and stop you and say, you have a face made for this new movie that I'm shooting and you should become a super, uh, you know, a movie star (laughs) or, or you build a piece of software in Silicon Valley and uh, you know, overnight you have, you know, millions and millions of downloads for 99 cents a download and, boom, you know, you're a millionaire. People believe that by and large. I mean, maybe not to the extent that I've laid it out here, but I think there's an idea that if you are innovative and you have great ideas and you put yourself out there and you take risks that one of these days it's going to work out, right? Mm-hmm. No matter what, you're starting, uh, what your starting point is. But but I would also say you're absolutely right in that in, in Europe, you have governments step in to sort of pull people that that are sort of on this runaway train with regards to wealth or whatever you pull them back down and you say hey you got to pay your share in taxes right because we're providing and it's getting bigger uh, low tuition yeah we're providing low tuition university and we're providing universal health care and we're providing beautiful parks and beautiful cities and the you in the US you know you, you let those you let that run away right so the incentivation to have a great idea and to grow that idea and to make it big at scale um that works better here because no one's going to, you know, pull you back into the into the into the pot, right? It's the lobster mentality like you have all these lobsters in the cooking pot and as the water gets hotter and hotter, some of them are going to try to climb up and any lobster that gets too high out of the pot is going to be pulled down by the other ones, right? <laughs> um uh you know, and it works in both directions. I mean, everybody in Europe knows how you know, America has, you know, if you if you're born I don't know. On the south side of Chicago, you're just not going to have the same opportunity, or you know, equality of opportunity is really an illusion, um, because you know, your starting your starting position uh, will matter mightily here. You know, the school districts that are um, that you have access to, the universities that you have access to, the healthcare you have access to. I mean, it's all kind of ruled by. By money right um the government is not going to be that big equalizer here um and that's a point of contention especially as things go bad right because uh then that system gets squeezed quite a bit quite a bit more but yeah by and large you know i've you know that if you are fortunate enough um, to have an education and if you're willing to work, I think you can have a fantastic career here. That's true for Europe as well. Right. But again, I think, and you pointed this out as well, Thomas, is the scale is just different. The scale and right? also the, US the urgency. Has this fantastic Yeah. Yeah. You have this fantastic domestic market here, right? 330 million people um, who are all striving for, you know, by and large, uh, a good life, the big house, the big car, you know, the big job. And ready to spend. What they you. are
0: ready to spend. I have yeah. another company, I a software that... company, and we just launched it in Europe. And we did not even go into the European market, to the US trade, and boom, out of a sudden, without even being on the phone through outbound, cold outbound, and just having chats with them, they are buying yeah. monthly subscriptions for 400, 500, even more euros. You wouldn't. In, in in Germany or Europe, you would need to have two calls with them explaining everything that they trust. I think everything has advantages and disadvantages, so maybe they get also scammed more often, <laughs> but we're not a scam there. Um, but it, it's just also an example where we would always say, we never tap into Europe, we just go straight to the US, and it works.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's so true. I mean, um, uh, I think the chief marketing officers of corporate America are ruling all of our lives, right? Um people have gotten so good at marketing whether it's a lot of it is not great, right? A lot of it is fear-based or or you know, you need to have this lifestyle to to be who you want to be, right? It's very difficult to distinguish f- fact from fiction or your needs from your wants and wishes. Uh, just because, you know, I and I noticed that in myself, I think uh chief marketing officers rule, you know, the demand side and they're very good at it.
0: And so. in terms of AI, what what, what do you see? Um, how is it shaping the way we work um, in the future and now? In case you have any feedback or anything you want to share with me, please send me an email on thomas at peoplewise.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. And in case you really enjoy the show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, wow. Everyone will have their own opinion on this one, but I what I notice is that there's a great uh, change framework by David Cooper writer who says uh, an organization or society will, will develop in the directions of the questions that they ask the most. And just by, you know, looking at the public discourse and the conversation here in business, everyone is talking about AI constantly all the time. So there's no doubt that the impact is going to be outsized that the um that jobs will change that that roles will disappear i believe there's as always an upside and a downside to this i think it's very promising in terms of um growth right so there there's just a lot of i, I there's three buckets of ai i believe one is knowledge and i think that the fact that you can you know put a prompt in chat gpt and get a perfect answer one that's good enough to pass you know, the legal entrance exams to Harvard Law School, why, you know, think about school, think about college, why are you going to go to, you know, to college for four years to regurgitate knowledge? Knowledge is solved, right? The second bucket is repeatable process. So to the extent that you can let a robot do a process that is highly repeatable, you know, I think uh, we're going to see that taken over by, by AI. And then the last bucket is true problem solving. And I think for the foreseeable future, for, for the, for the near medium term that will remain, you know, a, uh, a human domain uh, connecting dots, you know, being innovative and creative and solving problems. But there too, I think pretty soon, I imagine a world where you can say to chat GPT or some robot solve world hunger. And what it gives back to you is, an ideal world map with crop rotation and supply lines and distribution mechanisms, right? And that problem is just solved. The problem will always be, can you get humans to agree on, well, here's a solution, let's implement it, right? Um, but I think in terms of knowledge, in terms of how quickly knowledge will become accessible, how, how you can deploy it, um, and in terms of repeatable process being automated by AI, I think we're going to see that happen so crazy fast. It's already happening even in financial services, right? So you have robots uh, managing your portfolio because it can look at three thousand economic data points where a human portfolio manager maybe looked at ten and decided how to rebalance a portfolio based on that, right? Um, uh, you can have it, you know, in in project management, right? So there is now plugins that allow uh, an AI to listen to a project meeting and assign to-do lists and tasks and write backlog items, right? Why do you need project managers, right? What do you need scrum masters for? All of those roles are potentially a threat, right? Um, and at risk of, of becoming obsolete. But I mean, the sky's, the sky's the limit, right? And think about all the dark side of AI that we haven't even talked about.
0: Even yet, so. podcasting. I also saw that there are podcasts where AI is talking to each other. <laughs>
1: It's insane. I right? like, so a friend of mine, um, uh, his daughter applied to, you know, three jobs, was offered two, had to say yes to one and no to the other and said, I got to s- send a thank you note to the one that I'm not taking. I'm going to let Ch- ChatGPT write that thank you note. And it it nailed it. It hit it out of the park. Fantastic thank you note, right? And pretty soon, uh, no one's going to read those anymore because everybody knows those are AI generated. And the only one that's going to read them is another AI, right? Your Salesforce AI is going to say, "Hey, we received a thank you letter. Check, right?" But not, there's not a person. And, and as always, Thomas, right? Is if you have one force pushing strongly in one direction, you will have a counter force push, pushing into the other. So once robots are reading thank you notes that are generated by robots, the thank you note that's going to stand out is the handwritten one. So we're all gonna say, you know, and go back to if people can still write, you know. Um we're gonna write hand handwritten thank you notes to stand out from all of the digital noise that's that's created by by robots. Crazy, yeah. Um
0: definitely agree yeah. on that point. And maybe some final recommendations. Who is a guest that um you know, but I don't know who I should interview next?
1: Wow, yeah. I uh you know, ever since you said that at the beginning, I've I've been thinking about this. And there a lot of people come to mind. It kind of depends on what you're looking for. But in within my network, you know, um, let me uh let me send you a few folks. I think there's um obviously, you know, people that are very similar to me in financial services who maybe are, you know, run bigger teams and and have another opinion here. Um, but I also know, you know. Uh, you know uh, whether it's athletes or people running you know sports teams I it's a different angle for me so I kind of always love
0: that would be interesting I'm totally to, into sports and I never had someone from sports here
1: yeah yeah so in the neighborhood where I live there's a retired NHL player um who you know uh I think he 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 hung up his skates about a year ago or two and uh talking to someone like that is fascinating because it's a completely different career Um, than, you know, the corporate stuff that we all do. Definitely. Let me see what I can do.
0: Yeah, sure. It it would be awesome. And Rene, it was really nice meeting you and thanks for your time.
1: Likewise. Thanks for having me, Thomas.